Well, again, good morning and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. And it is, uh, as always, it is a delight to be able to be here with you. Uh, we're so thankful that you've taken the time to be with us. And, and I know we say this every week, whether it's here in person or via live stream or even later on sometime in a podcast, we are really grateful uh, that you would all choose to, to, to join together with us as we engage with God. And so... Um, Let's, from that place of being together, let's pray. God, I give you great thanks for this day and for your presence in our lives. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and stir in us, uh, invite us, move us uh, in any way that we will respond to. Um, Yeah, I pray that we would... uh, We would be open to you maybe in a way that we haven't been before or in a long time. Um, And there would just be um, a clear sense of your presence. Um, Yeah, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been uh, going through this series called God in Us. And it's been an engagement with the Holy Spirit is what we've been calling it. Where we've been trying to make sure we don't call it a study of the Holy Spirit or sort of a a look at the Holy Spirit, something like that, because we're trying to keep in mind that the Holy Spirit is a person. Um, It's not a force. It's not something intangible. It's not uh, not just some kind of thing that's out there. It's not an it, uh, even though I keep saying it. Um, But the Holy Spirit is a person. And one of the things that I've been trying to do each time I've been up here is, is sort of identify some way in my life that I've seen the Holy Spirit moving in a different way or, or, or maybe just the same old way but in some way that feels new. Um, and, and I wish I could tell you that I have one for this morning and it's not for lack of one. It's, it's just that as I've continued to sort of allow myself to be present to the Spirit, I have just found myself... Uh, almost feeling inundated with uh, the moments where I feel like I can sense the Holy Spirit's movement in the world and the people around me. And um, yeah, I almost, uh, almost feel overwhelmed at times by very simple things. Um, yeah, see, it's going to start. Uh, yeah, you, I was talking with a friend yesterday who he's one of the most even keel guys I know. Super chill, really relaxed, and, and he said, Greg, I don't know what's going on with me. I just feel like lately these days I'm, I'm angry all the time. Um, and he said, maybe I'm just getting old and grumpy. And I said, no, I'm getting old and I'm not grumpy yet. Um, a little bit, but not. And, and he said, yeah, you know, the other day I saw someone and I thought in my head, you know what? You're walking stupidly. The way you walk is so dumb and I'm so annoyed with you. And then he thought, what is wrong with me? Like, why do I even care? But as I talk to more and more people, right now, that is really common in our world. It's really common in our culture. A lot of us are angry. A lot of us are scared. A lot of us are confused. We're agitated. We're not quite sure why, but everything seems to kind of pick at us. And as I have been engaging with the Spirit, I found myself right in that same spot. We're going to look at today, though, I think shows us something different. And this week, we're going to be taking a look at, I think, one of the most challenging passages of Scripture. And it's not challenging in terms of its study. There's not a lot of Greek that's really difficult to translate or anything like that. It's 
simply that is difficult because of what it invites us to, what it asks us to do. We're gonna be looking at a passage in Acts, and I wanna set the stage for you before we get into the passage we're gonna look at. At this time, the church is, is really young, but it's, it's growing, and there are big things happening. Uh, the, the group has been gathering, and there's more and more people being added to the church daily, and it gets so big that the, the apostles, the original 12, um, have all uh, found themselves too busy. They're doing too many things, and so they need to appoint some other leaders to help them with all the tasks that they have. And so they're going about this. And the other thing that I noted about this that I thought was so interesting is that um, even the things that are hard, even the things that are really bad that are happening at this time feel like a win somehow, right? That even though it's really bad, yep, that's really hard, somehow there's a way that the, the early church sees it, and, and from their perspective, it's like, oh, yeah, but that's still really good. Um, in, in a much smaller way, it's like being a Seahawks fan, right? That, that every game is exhausting, but at the end it's like, but they won. And every game it feels like Russell Wilson is like, can we get behind by more so I can like make a bigger comeback? Like I really want us to be behind by like 30 with two minutes left so we can really press ourselves. That would be the ultimate. That would be so good. And when you hear some of the things that the disciples say, it feels that same way. And so at one point, the apostles are arrested uh, for teaching in the name of Jesus. And during the night, they're in prison, and God sends an angel and frees them. And the next day, the guards can't find them, uh, but they go out and find them preaching and teaching again. And so they bring them before the Sanhedrin uh, to be questioned because, you know, they were in jail last night, not in jail the next morning. Uh, and the Sanhedrin is like, they're kind of like the Supreme Court uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, Luke here in the book of Acts, we're going to read in just a second, but one of the things he tells us is it's the full assembly of the Sanhedrin. So there were about 71, and these were elders of Israel. And so they've brought these uh, apostles before the Sanhedrin, and this is what they say. This is in Acts 5, 27 and 28. It says, having uh, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, most of us have either been on the receiving end of this kind of conversation or we've been on the giving end of this conversation because this is much like a conversation that a parent has with a child. I told you not to do this. Didn't we just talk about this? And yet why are you doing the exact thing it seemed like we all agreed on was not gonna be done again? And this has that kind of tone to it. Right, and I've always wondered, why aren't they asking, so how did you get out of our prison? That seems like a number one question for me. I think it's because they don't care. They're so frustrated. The sense is this has been happening repeatedly, and there's a level of, look, we don't even care how you got out of our prison. We just need you to stop, because it's obvious we can't hold you. So can you just stop? Have you ever felt like that where you're so frustrated about something, you don't even care about a lot of the things that it would make sense to care about. You just want it to stop. When uh, 
Some of you have heard this story before, so I apologize, but I tell stories repeatedly. Uh, so when my two kids were younger, uh, there was a night where we took uh, my daughter's, my youngest daughter's crib, and it had the, you could take one of the large walls off, like one of the jail walls, right? So you take that off, and it's got a big open side. So this is the first night in, like, kind of an ability to get in and out of bed. She's in the same room, my older daughter and her shared a room, and so we knew there were going to be some shenanigans. We knew there were going to be some hijinks happening, and... Um, so we were ready for that. But in the middle of the night, my oldest daughter, Gianna, kind of yelled, like screamed. And we, so we ran in. We're like, what's going on? And of course, Mariel is sitting back on the crib like, I don't know. I've just been sitting here. Um, and we asked Gianna what's happened. And she says, Mariella bit me. Okay. Okay, we can deal with that. So we walk over. We're talking with Mariella. Okay. Mariella, did you bite your sister? Yes. Is it okay to bite your sister? No. Are you gonna do it again? Yes. <laughs> nope, let's back up a little bit. Try this again. Mariella, did you bite your sister? Uh-huh. Is it okay to bite your sister? No. Are you gonna do it again? Oh yeah. Nope, nope, nope. And I got to a point where I eventually told her, I asked the first two questions. Did you bite your sister? Yes. Is it okay to bite your sister? No. And then I prefaced it and I said, look, I'm going to ask you if you're going to do it again. And I don't care if you actually think you are going to do it again. You just need to say no so we can move on. So I can go to bed, you can go to bed, and we can just move on, right? There's a sense of frustration among these people. Like, look, we just need you to stop. Even just tell us you're going to stop. There's that level of frustration there. But I think the critical thing that's really behind this is revealed in their last sentence of these passages here. It says that these followers of Jesus were determined to make the Sanhedrin guilty of this man's blood. They're going to make them guilty of Jesus' blood. This is their fault. And this is one of the things that we hear about that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts. It says the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world. And I think they're feeling like that. So many of them want to steer clear of Jesus. Can't we just let that whole Jesus thing be? Like, can we just move on? Because for them, their whole system is, on, is maintained on being able to behave well. Being able to maintain the law as best they can, even though they know they can't. And then they go in yearly, and the high priest makes atonement for everybody, but they're feeling the presence of the Spirit. They're feeling that press to say, ah, there's something different, but they don't want to have anything to do with it. So the challenge that we often miss, the challenge that is present for the Sanhedrin right here is one of freedom. Freedom that comes in owning our own mistakes. The freedom that comes from acknowledging who we really are so that we can actually grow. Because if you try to grow from a false understanding of who you really are, you might grow somewhat, but the growth isn't going to be the, how it should be. It would be like me saying, I'm going to train to slam dunk a basketball. Now, all of you are saying, so from the get-go, Greg, that theory is flawed. Like, that, that's not going to work. But if I said, not only am I going to do it, but I believe that I'm six foot four, and so I only have to train this much to be able to dunk the basketball, Rather than acknowledging that I'm really only five foot six uh, and a half on some days. Um, so, no matter how, 
I train at that six foot four level, it's not gonna get me to be able to dunk a basketball. Because my understanding of who I am is, is off, it's flawed. We saw this while we looked a while back, we studied the life of Jacob. And if you remember, Jacob is involved in this huge string of lies and trickery that keeps him in all kinds of trouble. And it keeps spiraling out of control. And then he spirals, because it starts with his brother and his parents. Right, and there's a situation where his, uh, his dad is gonna bless his older brother, but his mom says, no, go trick your dad and you get the blessing. And then his brother says, well, I don't like that, so now I'm gonna kill you. And so Jacob leaves, spiraling. He literally has to run away to stay alive. And so he goes, he's gonna stay with his uncle. But now this spiral starts to involve his uncle and his uncle's daughters, and it goes even beyond that. And then again, he has to leave. He leaves his uncle. And then he realizes he's gonna leave, but he's gonna meet up with his brother, the brother who wanted to kill him. So he stops the night before, and he's gonna be in the presence of his brother the next day, the one who wants to kill him. So he stops to have a night alone, trying to figure out what to do. And he wrestles with this stranger. And they wrestle all night. And then when daybreak comes, the stranger says, I have to go. It's been a stalemate. They've been wrestling back and forth, no clear winner. The stranger says, I have to go. And Jacob says, no, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. And the stranger who we find out is God says, what is your name? Oh. My name, yeah. See, Jacob's name means heel grabber, usurper. And so all the things that have been in his life, it means trickster, right? It means he's been trying to supplant his older brother. He's been trying. It's all wrapped up in his name. What is my name? Oh, can we do anything else besides have to deal with that? But he answers. He says, Jacob. Theologian Paul Stevens notes that's the first time Jacob says his own name. And he owns who he is. And God says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled, you have wrestled with God and with mankind and have overcome. But that change could only come when he owned who he was. That change could only come when he had an honest look at himself and said, yep, you know what? This is who I am. And we don't want to do that. And I think the Sanhedrin is in that exact spot. They don't want to own who they are. So Peter and the apostles basically tell them, you're guilty of this man's blood. But more importantly than that is that he is risen from the dead. And more importantly, God has invited us to do something and we're gonna do what God's invited us to do instead of what you all tell us to. So basically, I'm gonna bite my sister again. Sanhedrin get livid. It says they wanna kill the apostles. And this one guy named Gamaliel, he says, hey, wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's dial it down a little bit for just a moment. He says, look, there've been tons of these Messiah figures before and they, they've rallied people and they've got people going behind them but eventually because it's not of God it fizzles it fades so if this isn't of God let's just leave it be and it'll go away but 
If it is of God, what hope do we have of stopping it? So why should we stand against it? Like, just kind of let's give it some space and see what it does. And the, the, the idea is, if it's, not, if it's of God, we might want to rethink some things. And so they agree to that, but they, uh, they flog the apostles, which means they beat them uh, and release them. And this is one of those times where it's a, it seems like a loss, but the apostles rejoice because they had been counted as worthy of uh, suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Uh, and then it says they daily were going around and preaching and proclaiming the good news. So this is the state that the church is in. Now there's this, uh, I mentioned before that the apostles had to, uh, had to get some new leaders. They had to get some people into positions so they wouldn't have to be trying to take care of everything. They wanted to focus on some things. Let's find some people to help us out. So in the midst of that, there's this guy named Stephen that's highlighted. And when they list him with other names, he gets an extra mention. The first time is in Acts 6-5, and it says this. Uh, this proposal pleased the whole group to gather up people. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And so of all the people listed, Stephen gets this special notice full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 6, 8 through 10, just a couple verses later, it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of the Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And so here again, we have Stephen, now full of God's grace and power, performing great wonders and signs among the people, and people could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit had given him. So Stephen's going around proclaiming the name of Jesus, teaching, preaching, performing miracles, and all these other cool things. And there's this synagogue, this specific synagogue that isn't liking it. They get angered. They get into these debates, but they cannot stand against the wisdom of the Spirit that is in Stephen. And, I, and here's our first stop, okay, that we read that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit, and here we read that he's speaking by the Holy Spirit. When you're walking with the Spirit, when you're in the Spirit, you will speak by the Spirit. And a lot of people, and I think this is totally valid, describe this as moments when um, you might be overcome by a feeling or something, and, and you say something and you go, you know what, that was not me. I don't know where those words came from. It's not how I would speak it. It's not, it's not a thought I've ever had before, but I say it, and here it is, and there it goes. There's a guy I know who was a teacher, uh, he was a professor up at Regent uh, Seminary in Canada, and he had an experience like this where he and his friends were praying and they were trying to, they, they'd read Acts and they were like, we want, we want to live that life, we want life to be like Acts, and so they were praying and doing stuff all the time, and uh, they um, went to church one Sunday, um, and there was a, a person who showed up 
the person, uh, the, the pastor gave an altar call. If you feel like the message is, is for you today, if there's something that's, that really struck you, come down front. This gentleman walked down front, uh, and this guy, his name is uh, Ricky Watts, uh, and he just felt like, I need to go and pray for this person. So he went down, and, and his, his, he was going to start praying for the person. He felt the Spirit say, you need to put your hands on the person's feet. And he was like, uh, yeah. So about that, like we're kind of in front of everyone. I don't know if you've noticed that, God, but I don't know if I just want to sit down and put my hands on this person's feet. Uh, but God said, well, that's what I'm asking you to do. So you can, you can take or leave it, but this is what I'm asking you to do. So he knelt down, put his hands on the person's feet, and, and, and he, as the story goes, he says the person began weeping and, and, and cried out, how did you know? And so the, this man had a problem with his feet, but this man didn't even live in the same town as this church was. He actually lived quite a ways away, and he had been, he wouldn't call it praying, but he had been in expressing just to the universe his anger and frustration about this ailment with his feet, and he sensed that something told him, you need to go to this church, and so he found that church and went there, and then Rick Watts came and prayed for him. The guy's feet were healed. And Rick Watts would clearly say, none of that was from me. I never would have the idea to kneel down and put my hands on someone's feet. So that's one side of it. But there's another side, too. I recently got a text from my brother. And in the text, he simply said, hey, Greg, I just want you to know I'm thinking about you. I love you. And I think you're amazing. We should have lunch sometime. And I don't know what it was, but those were the exact words I needed to hear. And I felt my heart just like come undone. There was such closeness and intimacy and, and, and my brother and I have a long history where I wasn't, I wasn't a very good older brother. Um, and so that every time he says something to me like that, it just, it kind of melts in my heart. Um, but those are the exact words my brother would say. Those are a thought he often has, but sometimes it's, it's like that too, right? It's, it's both and. Sometimes it's the exact words we would say, but they're in the right place at the right time, and sometimes they're the things we would never say, also in the right place in the right time. So here's Stephen in this situation, and, and the crew that wants to oppose him, they get some people, they gather some people together, and they rat Stephen out. They accuse him of speaking words against Moses and blaspheming God, and they stirred up trouble for him. Here's another spot I want to stop at. As a follower of Jesus, and really just as a human being, the world will, will stir up trouble against you. It may not be people setting you up or framing you like in this story, could just be like Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow because the day has enough trouble of its own. It might be persecution or it might just be that this is a day that has a lot of trouble in it. You may find there are some people who don't like you. You may find there are some people you don't like. You may find yourself in a job with someone who's aggressively opposed to you and the things you believe in. They might be smarter than you are. They might have really good arguments. They might be really vocal. You might have a professor in your classes who says something that you don't think is true and really rails against you, and you have no opportunity in that space to defend yourself or what you believe. You might have someone attack your worldview.
you may find yourself in all kinds of places. And often, you might find yourself in a place where you think, I don't know how it could get any worse. Or when you feel like you are at the absolute end of what you can endure, you'll feel trapped, overwhelmed, and out of control. At this moment, the opposition, it says, um, they seize Stephen. It's not they escort him. It's not that they take him. They seize him. It's a very specific word there. It almost has this sense of grab and crush. Right? Seize, I take in. They bring false witness forward. They set him up, and they're looking to take him down. This is like a feeding frenzy. We have this interesting line. It says, everyone here looks intently at Stephen, and they notice he has a face like an angel. This is the one spot I'm going to focus on some Greek. The word here is prosopon, and it means more than just the features of the face, but it means the face as it is the window to the interior of the person. And so as everyone is looking at Stephen, they see not just the features of his face, but that window into who he is. And it says, they see an angel, a messenger of God. And the high priest asked Stephen, so these charges that everyone's brought against you, are these true? Timing is interesting here because this, uh, the guy who was the high priest at Jesus' trial, Caiaphas, remained in office till 36 AD. So this could be the same high priest. And Stephen, in response, tears into the Sanhedrin. Goes after everything they believe. Walks them through. This is who Moses really is. This is the stuff that we really believe. And this is all the stuff that you should know and understand. God's presence in the land. God's presence in delivering Israel. All that stuff. And at the end of it, he says, And you have always resisted the Holy Spirit, and you're doing it now. And it says the opponents gnash their teeth. This is not a phrase we often use, um, but uh, it means like to clench your teeth with your lips apart so the teeth can be seen. It means grinding the teeth. Lots of times we think of like dogs or wolves doing it and there's kind of a snarl and a twitch attached to it but there's this gnashing their teeth are grinding and clenched together they're so upset they're Kah! to imagine being one person surrounded by 71 people who all of a sudden are gnashing their teeth at you And it's not just that it's an expression of their anger because every other time in the New Testament that gnashing of teeth is mentioned, it's always associated with hell or demonic presence. Because it could just be a feeling like I'm really mad. Ugh, lots of us have done that. Ugh, right? And we, we clench our teeth. But this is different. And so... In the face of this, Stephen, it says, full of the Holy Spirit, sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And it's interesting because most of the times when Jesus is described by God at the right hand of God, he's sitting. 
I find it interesting that he's standing. Some say that Jesus is standing up to greet Stephen as he is about to die. Some say it's Jesus standing as a witness for Stephen before his father. Others say Stephen is actually seeing a vision of Jesus as he's about to return. This is Jesus in action. And what could be more comforting to a person who is in this position than to know Jesus is not just sitting, but Jesus is alive and active and present in the world. In Stephen, it says, he acknowledges this. And as he says this, says the opponents, stop up their ears and are shouting. Now, this is what I imagine. Hands over ears and shouting at the top of my lungs. How mad do I have to be to get to that space? where I physically need to stop up my ears and I need to shout at the top of my lungs to get whatever voice it is to stop. At the same time, we see kids do this, right? La, 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 I don't hear you. And so they do this, and while they're doing this, they take Stephen outside so they can stone him. As this is happening, Stephen asks Jesus to receive his spirit and then asks that the Lord would not hold this sin against them. And then he says he falls asleep. As this story goes on, Stephen begins to look a lot like Jesus. And the question I have as I read through this for myself and for us is when we endure hardship, when we're confronted with evil, even to the point of our death, who do we see and who do we look like? Stephen, the story goes on again, looks more and more like Jesus. The fact that he stands possibly before the same high priest. We have Jesus in Luke 23 saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Stephen saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Very similar. We have Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we have Stephen saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen's looking like Jesus. At the end of the story, we read that there's a young Pharisee standing there named Saul, who we will later know as the Apostle Paul, who's taking pleasure in the death of of one of Christ's followers. Who do we look like when things get difficult? Who do we see when things are their most difficult? I know for myself, too often the focus is on me. The Sanhedrin were focused, I believe, on themselves and their argument, not on Jesus. In fact, they were saying, you want to make us guilty of this man's blood, we need to get away from that. There's no peace for them in their opposition to Stephen. How do we then engage with difficulty, with, with, with conflict, with evil? How do we 
have this experience where we can see Jesus, and in that seeing Jesus, we can become more like Jesus. How do we then be full of the Spirit? How do we walk in the Spirit and remain in the Spirit? It's all the things we talk about. It's reading Scripture. It's praying. It's coming and gathering together. It's being present in all the spaces and places we're in, looking for the presence of the Spirit in everyone we encounter, regardless of what we think they believe. It's opening our eyes. It's being awake. It's being attentive. Asking, is that the Lord? I have a bunch of other things I, I want to say, but there's one thing I, I really feel pressed um, about because there's really two, two places we end up, I think, in this story, either feeling like Stephen or feeling like the Sanhedrin. One of the things it talks about in Scripture is that God is the lifter of our heads, and this is uh, taken from the example of when you're in the presence of royalty, You bow your head. You don't look at the king or the queen. You don't look at the authority. You keep your head down. That was how it was in the ancient world. But the idea is that Jesus and and God lifts our heads so that we can see. And it's often uh, talked about the freedom we have in the presence of God, that we no longer have to keep our heads down, but that God invites us to see who he is. But I think in this case, we have an instance where Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, enables Stephen to lift his head just so he can see him and know him and receive life and comfort from him as he is facing the most difficult of circumstances. When we look at Jesus, can we see him standing, moving, walking with us, ministering to us? Because I believe that that is what it means to be full of the Spirit. Because when we're full of the Spirit, we're connected with the Spirit, then we can see Jesus. We talked about at the very beginning that the Holy Spirit allows us to do two things. One, proclaim that Jesus is Lord, and secondly, cry out, Abba, Father. If we can do that, then we can see Jesus. We can know Jesus. We can see beauty and know beauty, and we can be transformed in that. And so that's one side that's the Stephen side right he sees beauty he sees Jesus and is able like Jesus to say father forgive them forgive the people who are gnashing their teeth at me who are covering their ears up and shouting over me all they want to do is stop me and shut me down and now they're going to kill me can you forgive them and then there's the Sanhedrin And in my notes, I've labeled this as a message to those of us who have power. How will we respond when we're confronted by people? Will we stop up our ears, shouting, denying that anything they're saying could be possible or could be true? Because that's what we do when we're intoxicated with power. When confronted in any way that attempts to seemingly try and take that power from us, We fight, we cling, we deny, and we use our power to destroy whatever is confronting us. 
There's an invitation and a challenge in this to be different. To take the power that we have been given and to give it away. That drive to hold on to power, that drive to destroy what confronts us and instead give it away to someone else so they can have a voice. And we can listen. We can hear, we can carefully evaluate, is this even true? Is the accusation brought against me true? Can we engage with people in meaningful ways that facilitate a reality where everyone is honored and heard? Even if that is coming at us in a way that's trying to tear us down. What if it's not true? Because when we give our power away, that's exactly what Jesus did. And then from that place, we can change. You know, um, some of you know I have a martial arts class that I run. And one of the most challenging things uh, when you're sparring, um, we always work on keeping our hands up so your hands are up. But sometimes people throw techniques that can't really hit you, but they can come really close. And they use those as a feint. They use those to set you up. Because what they want is if they can get my hand to move that much, then there's a big opening created here, right? But if it is gonna stop right here, if it can't get me, then I don't have to respond to that. I can stay right here, and I don't have to move my hand out that far to block something that can't even damage me. But it is so hard to override the instinct that says, go after that, chase that, because that feels dangerous, it looks dangerous, I better stop it, and then you get punched or kicked in the face. The reality was so many of the things we're dealing with right now is we're responding so quickly to, I think, things that people are throwing out and they're not even really things that can hurt us, but we chase after them. I gotta snuff it, I gotta stop it, I gotta shove it down and get rid of it because it feels like it's gonna hurt me. But if we give the power away, it can't hurt us. So I want to challenge those of us who have power, those of us who have privilege, to give that away. I want to end with this. And worship team, if you could come forward, that would be fantastic. Um, I started with a story about a guy who was typically even keel and very calm, now getting very mad because someone walked stupidly. Um, and when we talked, what we, the conclusion we came to, because um, we asked the question, would Jesus get mad because someone was walking stupidly? Um, and we came to the conclusion that it didn't seem like he would. Um, and so then we said, well, what would Jesus do? Hmm, Jesus probably loved that person, right? Go t- talk to him, hang out with him, or, you know. And just, but just the question, so what would Jesus do? Got us on this new track, this new path, right? But that was the spirit again, just moving in a very simple way that opened my heart to something new. And so I have a couple of questions and then we're gonna end in a different way. And these are just questions I want you to think about. What are areas in your life where you see Jesus? And are there ways that he's inviting you to be like him? And what are areas of in your life or in your world where you don't see Jesus, and what is that like? Because everywhere we're at, any situation we're in, whatever it is, 
I believe that Jesus is present there, the Spirit is present there and is inviting us to go and live and be like Jesus in those places and spaces. Before we um, moved into this, before we had announcements, Brian had us sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Um, I'm gonna let that be our closing prayer. So we're just gonna sing it one time um, and that's gonna be our prayer. After that, the worship team will play for a moment instrumentally and let you just sit and think and reflect on anything that the Spirit has stirred in your heart this morning uh, and then we'll move on to a a closing uh, song. Um, So I'm gonna turn this off and we'll...